This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's Bigger Question, how do you lead in a polarised world? Now, we usually record bigger questions before a live audience, but we weren't able to get our guest before a live audience today, yet I'm sure that you'll enjoy what we have in store. My guest today is John Anderson. John is a farmer and grazier from New South Wales who spent 19 years from 1989 in the Australian Parliament. He served as a senior cabinet minister in the Howard government and served for six years as leader of the National Party and deputy prime minister. He retired from politics in 2005 and now hosts a popular podcast and video series called Conversations with John Anderson, engaging important issues facing our world. And he joins me now. John, welcome to Bigger Questions. Good to be with you. It's good. And now, with your listeners. Now, you served for a number of years in political life. Now, does that mean that people recognise you in the streets? Uh, well, a lot of people are younger now. Uh, it's amazing how the demographics change. So older people tend to, younger people perhaps not so much so. Uh, and I'm probably better known in regional Australia. But it is a strange thing because... Uh, often people are too polite to show that they've recognised you. Right. So people feel like they know you from somewhere, but they, they can't quite that happens pick, too. They can't quite pick, pick it. So they'll look at you and they'll say, I'm sure I know you from somewhere, to which I say, people sometimes they say that to me, which is true and avoids the issue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what's often surprising is that you'll be in conversation with somebody and you'll think, isn't this nice? They, uh, they're just talking to me as a, a, an ordinary citizen and then they'll say something like... Uh, now, I remember when and you they, they, <laughs> do, they do recognise you. And then the conversation changes at that point. <laughs> yes. Now, so what's the – you spent a long time in public service. So what's one of the biggest challenges then, uh, being in public office? Look, it's a tough gig, particularly uh, for people who are in the federal parliament or uh, either the reps or the Senate. Most representatives are a long way from home. There's a lot of travel. And the more senior you become, the more – strident and urgent the demands from people and on your time yeah. actually become. Yeah, so is it hard to then find time for yourself or you, for your family? Yeah, I, I remember a member of parliament saying to me once, if you divide your life into your social life, your family life and your work life in politics, uh, one will have to go. Right. You'll fail at one. Okay. So it's best to decide which one to slacken off on. Right. And for sensible people, that means that they have to back off on their own personal social life if they want to keep their family life together and be an effective uh, member of parliament. But yeah. it can be done. Yeah. And in particular, I found the principle of the Sabbath day was incredibly important for me and for my family. It became a sheet anchor for my young children very early in life. They knew dad would be around on Sundays and they would have his attention. Mm. So that was stemming from your Christian convictions, etc., to have a Sabbath. That's from the Bible, that idea. Yeah, I don't know how people survive without it. I see people peddling hard seven days a week, uh, burning the candle at both ends, and I'm sure they're less effective for it because it's not the model. It's not the way we were designed to work. Mm. Now, today we are talking about leadership in a polarised world. An American marketing specialist and author, Guy Kawasaki, said... When I finally got a management position, I found out how hard it is to lead and manage people. So is Kawasaki right? Is leadership hard? It's very hard when you have to persuade, when you have to take people with you. In a democracy to lead, you need to be able to do three things. Work out where it is that you think you should be going. That's mm -hmm. the vision thing. The vision, yep. You've got to be able to articulate it to others. You've got to be able to explain it 
in ways that are meaningful and relevant that highlight the problem and the solution. Uh, so that's uh, the second part of it, articulate the vision. The third part of it is that you must have about you the personal qualities that make others trust you and believe you and want to work with you to achieve that vision. It's the only way it can be in a democracy because you don't command people. Mm. You have to but persuade now, them. But the massive problem that is emerging is that we are fragmenting as a people. Mm. The virtues, the civic glue that used to bind us together, they're all under attack. In an age of moral relativism, everyone's an island now, mm. so it's becoming much harder. And there will come a point, I simply assert this as a matter of fact, where if we continue to polarise, if we continue to fragment, if we continue to tribalise, democracy will not work anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose that's the, the other thing some commentators have suggested, that Australia is becoming increasingly polarised. You've just mentioned it now, politically, oh, yeah. politically and socially. That's something that you've, you've, you've sensed. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's no doubt about that at all. You can see it in the census numbers. Mm -hmm. We were once broadly of a universal belief system. Mm. Whether you went to church or not, you broadly believed that the Christian worldview was an appropriate one. Yep. And no less a figure than our longest-serving Prime Minister... Robert Menzies, he made this observation, and it's a profoundly important one. He said that democracy is not a machine, it's a spirit in which the Christian conception that no matter your capability or station in life, every human being wears the stamp of the divine. What does that mean? It means that, it, it, you find it in Genesis 1, you find it right through the Bible, uh, that man made in the image of God uh, is very special, a man, mm. any man, any human being. They are all to be respected because they bear the stamp of the divine. Well, when you mock God out of the public square, you have no basis for respecting another person if they disagree with you. And in an age when every view seems to be held up as legitimate, oh, you believe that? Well, that's good for you. You can believe that. Even if it entirely faces, flies in the face of the evidence, you know, we've lost the glue that bound us together. Mm -hmm. We don't have a common view of the significance, the nobility, but also the shared failings of each and every human being. Rather, we divide good and evil along the lines of groups mm. instead of understanding that we're all a mixture. So you think that because of uh, this sort of loss of this sort of shared common identity, so to speak, uh, connected to the Christian worldview, that's one of the key reasons for our polarising culture? Well, let me put it the other way around, because our modus operandi in the public square has become to immediately paint as immoral any idea we don't like mm. and the people who are putting that idea, rather than to ask the first and foremost question on the presupposition that this is put up by another fellow human being who's worthy of my respect, what are the arguments here? Mm. That's not where we go now. Mm. I often hear that people say that you need to earn to be respected. That's very different, perhaps, to your understanding of what it means to be living in a pluralistic society? Or Well, if we live in a society that says, uh, you know, you must earn the right to be respected, well, who says mm. when you've earned the right to be respected in a culture like ours? The people with the power, the people who got there by cunning and power. Mm. Whereas the traditional Christian model is that everyone has a right to be heard. And one of the things I actually learnt in politics is that even the most humble people who have had only the most limited education have something of great wisdom and insight to offer. Some of the cleverest and wisest people I've met didn't finish secondary school. Mm. Uh, this is very worrying. Mm, we we mm. need to rediscover respect for one another. Mm. 
Well, on what basis do you do it mm. if you don't have a higher authority, some set of external reference points? Yep. If it's all from within, if it's all mm. subjective, mm. Yep. and we're narcissists by nature, mm. well, if I don't like your idea and nobody else is telling me that there is a higher and better way, well, I'm going to rip you to shreds if I dislike your ideas mm. because you don't matter. You mm. might be an immoral person. Mm. Now, John, you mentioned a few times that the, the Christian worldview, which obviously impacts you. You are a Christian believer. So, but, so why is that? Did you, did you grow, up, grow up going to church? Is that why no. you believe? No, I didn't. I came from a sort of classic, I suppose, Edwardian uh, <laughs> grazing family in New South Wales where the external formalities were occasionally observed and when we were kids we were made to say our prayers at night, but that was about the extent of it. We never went to church. Yeah. Um, no, I became a believer as a schoolboy. And then at university, it was this very issue of grappling with the great clash of ideas that shape every society and the realisation that all the good ideas that had given us the rule of law, democracy, the institutions of a free society essentially had clearly arisen from a Christian worldview. Mm. I mean, uh, you know, if, you might not want to, that you'll have listeners who will say, oh, you know, that's just nonsense. Well, the greatest defender of freedom in the 20th century was not a Christian believer, but he understood Christian civilization, mm. and that was Churchill. Yeah, he understood the concept of Christian civilization, the way in a society in which you actually do treat the people around you as your neighbours, and do unto them as you'd have them do unto you. It's unique. You don't find it in other cultures. You certainly didn't find it in Nazism or in communism. Uh, and I can't find it in any other belief mm. system or creed either. Mm. I really so, can't. So that was a key thing for you in terms oh, yeah. of convincing you that, that yeah, yeah. Christianity is worth following because it actually... Oh, absolutely. Because the alternatives to me... You know, on the surface of it, you can say, it's uh, as C.S. Lewis did, it's so improbable that it has the ring of truth about it. <laughs> but he, he emphasised he found it very improbable at first. And I can understand why people see it that way, but the more you look into it, the more you try and understand the conundrum of good and evil, the glory and the scum, as Pascal put it. You know, um, how do you explain for the nobility of a human being laying down their lives for others, mm. uh, placing themselves in front of a hail of bullets to save a, a woman and a child in a supermarket in, in, in France? That's noble. It's wonderful. It's incredible. It's courageous. We all admire it with the depravity of a leader who sends 12 million people in his own country to the gas chambers. How do you explain that extraordinary conundrum? Mm. And I think you, the only place you can find a proper and satisfying explanation, don't fully understand it, but I can't find anything else that goes anywhere near it, is the idea that we were indeed made in the image of the creator, given free will, chose selfishness, Therein you have an explanation for the nobility and for the selfishness that really lies behind uh, our strife, mm. the trouble we've got ourselves into. That was obviously very persuasive to you. It's, oh, as, as you were in, so. in, in, I wasn't happy with it. Right, you didn't, you didn't want to believe it? No. No, I didn't. No, no. And I remember my father saying, oh, you'll never have any friends again if you're going to adopt those weird views, <laughs> uh, which has turned out to be anything but true. I found... Uh, that in essence we were made for relationship and to be restored in relationship through no merit of my own with my creator and with those around me uh, has meant that if there's one thing I've never been as a believer, it's lonely. Mm. Now, people are suspicious of Christians in public office. Do you think that your Christian faith has enhanced or detracted from your service of the Australian people? Oh, goodness, I hope it's... 
I hope. It would be devastating to me if you could point to evidence as to how it was a bad thing because it gave me a deep commitment to serve, the idea of trying to put self aside, doing my best for others. Now, I'm not saying everybody would have agreed with every policy that I supported or even advocated, but in terms of my motives, um, I would hope that they were honourable. And I'd also have to say that it's easy to point to people who've done the wrong thing in public life. But we've had countless examples of people in this in this country who have had clear... Fa- go, and look at your, go and look at your currency. The number of people who are commemorated on our, our dollar bills, on well, not dollar bills, but on our notes, yep. um, as great Australians who have made a magnificent contribution, it's staggering how many of them had deep Christian belief. mm, mm. Now, one of the problems, though, with the Christians in public office is that their Christian values are not shared values. So can you really serve people whom you disagree with? Oh, yes. You have to be able to. Good grief. At the heart of the Christian message is the idea that uh, Christ died for his enemies, Mm. for the people who put him there, who were sworn to, uh, uh, if you like, um, get rid of him. Yeah. So is it tempting then to not not serve people who didn't vote for you? Absolutely. Of course it is. We're all human. Sometimes love is something you do. Not, not, some, only do not you something you do feel. It, it's something you do despite your feelings. Mm. So do you think the Christian faith increases polarisation or brings people together in the public? It's a good question. Space? It's a very good question because, of course, it's an uncomfortable message. Blaise Pascal, a great French thinker, said that the men hate religion. And he meant by religion Christianity because in France at that time that's what he was talking about. Yeah. Men hate religion for fear it may be true. Um, yeah, it's divisive. The Christian message is tough. It says your problem actually is that you're worshipping yourself. It flies directly counter to the message that the bank ad has, look after the most important person in the world, you. Mm. But it's a tough message. Uh, give up yourself. You actually find yourself by giving away your own identity, your own passions, and finding them in uh, in the family of, mm. of Christ. Now, the Bible has many different types and styles of leaders. Now, there's a story in the New Testament about one of Israel's leaders, which is King Herod, who ruled over the ancient lands of the ancient Near East. And there's a story recounted in the New Testament book of Mark, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have, where we learn a bit about the leadership style of King Herod. Now, in chapter 6, there's a difficult leadership challenge that he faces where we learn that John the Baptist has criticised his decision, King Herod's decision, to marry Herodias, his brother's wife, and so Herod's put John the Baptist in prison. Now, John, it would seem in the ancient world that there wasn't quite the same freedom to criticise leaders that we enjoy today in Australia. Would that be fair? Uh, well, I think that's right, yes. and that's been common to most cultures down through the age. We need to realise how different we are historically. We're very different. Mm. This is not the norm. What we take for granted in Australia is not the norm. That's why we should be prepared to fight for it. Um, But of course you do get, I mean, you know, there are two models of leadership. Uh, One model says, you will serve me. The other says, I will serve you. Mm. Mm. Herod was, who was he trying to please? The crowd. We'll we'll find that out as we go because then on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for Mm. all of his high officials and military commanders and all the leading men of the country came. And the daughter of Herodias uh, came and danced and pleased Herod and his dinner guests. So the king then said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, John, you've been in politics of making promises. Was that a wise promise to 
to offer? No. I'm sure Herod was highly intelligent, but he was plainly also very stupid <laughs> and yeah. very unwise and lacking in foresight mm. uh, and wanting to ingratiate himself with all the wrong people. Mm. Now, the mother of the girl who danced Herodias uh, held a grudge against John the Baptist, and when his daughter went to ask of what she, she should ask for, she said this, she answered, "'The head of John the Baptist,' she answered. At once the girl hurried to the king with the request, "'I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter.'" Now, I do realise that Australian people and politics are divided, but it's possibly not quite this bad, is it, that you ask for your enemy's head on a platter? Hmm. Or maybe death threats are more common in politics, perhaps. I'm not well, sure. Uh, we've had years and years, centuries, centuries of slowly evolving Christian understanding of the value of life and the need for fairness and proper trials mm. uh, and those sorts of things. And it's deeply imbued in our culture. That's inappropriate. But again, we need to note... It's not common to all cultures. We're very fortunate. We don't want to jettison that too lightly because plainly what you saw there was great evils. Murder. Yes, well, there was. That's what he was suggesting. That oh. was the prize, I yeah. suppose. That's it was right. just to have the head so of you a had political a very, prisoner. A very foolish leader and you had gross immorality on the part of the mother mm. and I suppose, um, you know, less than thought through... Uh, uh, Offer. ...obedience, if you like, uh, by the, by the daughter. Mm. So it reflects very poorly on everyone. Mm. And this request caused Herod some distress. And it says... So it should have. Uh, <laughs> it's too late. And he says, but because of his oaths and his dinner mm. guests, he mm. didn't want to refuse her. So is that mm. a challenge then leading in a polarised world? Absolutely. There's competing interests yeah. uh, that a good leader needs to satisfy? Absolutely. So what do you think a good leader would have done in this circumstance? Uh, never made the offer in the first place. It was an absurd thing to do. Yeah. Because who? the question is, who was he seeking to please? Mm. It was obviously he wanted to please his um, dinner guests and, yeah. uh, and those around him. Well, if you believe in a higher authority, if you believe you'll have to give account one day, you'll have a weather eye first and foremost on what that account might look like. Mm. Mm. Because the crowd is always fickle. Mm-hmm. The crowd is always fickle. We're fickle. I'm fickle. You're fickle. I'm yes. sorry, but no, you I are. No, you, I am. I'm, uh, I'm but, fickle and shallow at times. But when we are together, the mob can be can get it right. Yep. They can get it horribly, horribly wrong. And a leader worth his salt will always recognise the need to be driven by an inner conscience. Because here's the rub. What we forget in a democracy is that the people we elect are a mirror of ourselves. They reflect us. And when we see them behaving selfishly, we despise the value system of self-service. We want them to serve us. Mm. We know there's a better way. But it should lead us to ask, who are we serving? Mm. Mm. Well, this particular story then ends badly for, for John, John the Baptist, because Herod immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter and he presented it to the girl and she gave it to his mother. So this was a, a failure of leadership then, perhaps? Complete. Yes. Yeah. All round. Because he was serving well, himself effectively? He was seeking to ingratiate himself yes. with the wrong people. I think that much is evident. But I think more than that, I think what is lacking there is a proper understanding of the worth and dignity of all individuals. And in our Christian culture that evolved into the insistence that people who were accused of serious crimes were entitled to a proper and fair trial. 
Now, he's not the only politician that, you know, so he gives way under pressure. Mm. Uh, Pontius Pilate does later too. Yes, he does. He's, he's courageous until the crowd starts to become And that comes back restless. to the, the, the crowd question that you've raised And before. he knows that he's doing wrong. Mm. Mm. Well, this model of leadership is then contrasted with Jesus in the very next story presented in Mark. So do you think that Jesus was a good leader? Well, he's the model for good leadership, surely. Mm-hmm. Laid down his life for others, including his enemies, not just his friends. Uh, and that has become the, the model of service leadership that defined our culture for so long. Often people failed, no doubt about that. Uh, but uh, we revere some of the leaders in our own history precisely because they led for others, not for themselves. Uh, now, Jesus' leadership ability was challenged in the very next story in the, recorded in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus was seeking some rest it says in Mark 6.31, Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now, is, you can, I suppose you can appreciate Jesus' desire to withdraw from public scrutiny and just get some rest. That's, that's something you can clearly relate to. It's critical. You can't function without it. Yeah, but anyway, has he goes... It's, by the way, I think in the age of social media and the 30-second news grab, one of the reasons our politics is becoming a bit dysfunctional, some would say very dysfunctional, is precisely because there is no relief. There's mm. no headspace. There's no reflection time. There's no room for calm, reasoned debate uh, and thinking mm. time for our leaders. I think it's a very serious problem. Well, as he goes away, people do recognise him, anticipate where he's going and run ahead. So then when Jesus arrives at his place of rest, so to speak, he sees a large crowd. And so do you think that Jesus' heart sank when he arrived at this so-called quiet place to get some rest and instead there's a huge crowd waiting? <laughs> well, I know mine would have. <laughs> I can't speak for Jesus. <laughs> well, his reaction is recorded in verse 34. It says, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion yeah. on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mm. And he began teaching them many things. Does Jesus' response here surprise you? Uh, yes, but it delights me because it tells a story of an endless willingness to give and of a deep, compassionate concern for my well-being. So if you're a general ordering men to put their lives at risk when all rational thought would tell them, no, I don't want to do this, I might get killed, you need to believe that the person asking you doing it is worthy of great respect and you're not likely to respect them if you don't think they care about you. Mm-hmm. So do you think this is what makes Jesus uh, able to lead well? Yeah, well, if compassion is love, if it's born of, of, of evidence of such love that God-man will lay down his life for people who actually have spat on him and despised him in order that they can be reconciled, mm. That's a mind-boggling concept, Mm. absolutely mind-boggling. And by the way, the fact that the the Bible paints this picture that Christ had to pay such an astonishing price for us to be reconciled should also stop us, cause us to stop and ponder, have I been so bad that he had to pay that terrible price? In other words, it wasn't a cheap thing. Mm. How do you respond to that question? I think the more I understand the idea of the grace extended to me by Christ, the more I'm aware of my own failings, the more I'm aware of my own failings, the more I am aware of God's love. Mm. And that's, a, that's an important thing for you? Yeah, it is. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I often, uh, when I really pause and reflect, um, I don't like what I see at all. I fall horribly short of the person I would like to be and that I know that I should be, um, but I need an adopted nobility in a way. Mm. So do you think it's insulting here that uh, to call the people here sheep or is there a desire, do you think, from among the people to, to long for good leadership? It's a good question because I've worked with sheep and they're pretty dumb. <laughs> um, this is on the farm, not, yeah. in, not in cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, sheep are very, very useful animals and remarkable in their own way, but when they are confused and without a leader, they are frustrating and unimpressive and very irritating. So I'm always intrigued by that reference, frankly, to us as sheep. So you think there's a big contrast here between the leadership style and uh, of, and character of Jesus versus that of Herod? Well, I guess black against white. Mm. I mean, uh, ask yourself this question, who would you respond to? Who would you like to sit down and have dinner with? Mm. Who would you like to entrust your life to? Mm. So, John, how do you lead in a polarised world? Well, if you if it becomes too polarised... You can't lead democratically. I think that's a chilling reality. And I think you'd have to say that there is a very big question mark indeed as to whether democracy can survive the sort of tribalisation that is emerging in the Western world today, think Brexit, Mm -hmm. and the damage being done to the institutions of democracy in Britain today. Think Trump's polarised America. I think Trump, by the way, is the product of the polarisation. Mm-hmm not the Mm. cause of it, though he might be taking it forward, Uh, but then his political opponents are making the problem worse with their hatred. We must grasp the moment Mm. and argue the case vigorously and courageously for better. At the very least, let us remember Menzies' words, we ought to look on our fellow Australians with respect and with a recognition, even if we can't bring ourselves to say they bear the stamp of the divine, that no other civilizational model has worked as well as this one. Mm. Menzies saw that very clearly. Churchill saw it very clearly. They were great defenders of freedom in a troubled century. If we're not prepared to go back to the scriptures, we might at least listen to wise leaders who have served us well. Mm. And Jesus perhaps gives us a a vision of leadership in a polarized world? Well, I believe so totally. I I believe he is the ultimate model of leadership for the simple reason that, uh, frankly, in the end, he's the boss. We're told every knee will bow before him. So, I mean... uh, And he cares. He he does care. He makes it plain that in the end, um, if we don't acknowledge him, then he won't won't own us either. Mm. Let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, how do we lead in a polarised world, from Mark 6, 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today. One last thing to remember about that, though. He knew each sheep by its name. He calls us out by name. So we're not just a mob of sheep. We're all individuals. Mm. Thanks very much to our guest today, John Anderson. Thank you. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.